You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The African country of Lesotho doesn't make the news much, but now the prime minister has promised to resign, his wife is on the lam, and questions are again being raised about the murder of his ex-wife three years ago. And there's not a lot of agreement in jurisdictions around the world about the use of lie detector tests. What is clear is that the tests don't work perfectly. But even so, there's a belief that they can spot some of the truth, and that is enough to make people reveal more of it. First up, though. For more than half a century, the Colombian government had been at war with the FARC rebel group. There had been some steps toward peace about a decade ago, but talks became stuck. The two sides couldn't agree on how those responsible for the crimes of the civil war should be held to account. A British charity called Intermediate helped find a way forward. And in 2015, a pioneering transitional justice deal was reached. A historic peace accord was soon to follow. Hemos alcanzado un acuerdo final, completo, definitivo. Para poner... That's just one example of how what's known as Track 2 diplomacy has helped resolve a conflict when official channels stalled. And our diplomatic editor, Daniel Franklin, has been reporting on its rise. Track 2 diplomacy, as distinct from Track 1 diplomacy, is unofficial or private diplomacy, not through governments or international organizations such as the UN, but run by private facilitators, typically charities, non-governmental organizations. And why is there a need for a second one? What's wrong with the first? Well, often the track one, the official diplomacy, breaks down in some way or never gets started. There are adversaries who refuse, frankly, to talk to each other. And the only way that, in particularly difficult cases, they will talk to each other is through the good offices of an intermediary, a trusted intermediary, a referee, if you like, who's trusted by both sides. And one aspect of it that can be quite critical, too, is the deniability that you can have meetings and you can discuss ideas that don't involve governments and that don't, therefore, mean that governments have to be stuck with their official policy. You can explore ideas, you can test possible solutions without the political backlash that you would get if you were a government. So talking to terrorists, for example, is extremely controversial, ethically very tricky. But sometimes you have to do it. And over history, time and again, to get to solutions of persistent problems, this has happened. But you often do it without the government admitting that it's doing it, at least in the first place. So what are some examples where that's how resolution was reached? Well, I suppose a famous example is the Oslo Accords, which were to bring together Israelis and Palestinians towards a peace effort in the Middle East. 
But actually, the origins of that stretch way back to a Harvard academic who held informal discussions between Israelis and Palestinians. So the trust was built up over a very long time. More recent examples would be the peace processes for the IRA in Northern Ireland or the Basque terrorists of Etta, and there have been other places. There are many examples, but a lot of the track two stuff is pretty unspectacular. It's plodding away patient diplomacy and often putting together potential solutions that won't be picked up immediately, but may one day when the political stars align. And I suppose diplomacy isn't just limited to peacemaking between warring parties. I think it can be anywhere where the official processes are leaving gaps. So, for example, on climate change, American official diplomacy is rather conspicuous for its absence since the Trump administration has pulled out of the Paris Accord. But there's still a scope for conversations about climate change and what to do about it at lower levels and what state and private businesses are doing. So there are dialogues. In fact, there's one happening next month between the United States and India at the non-official but expert level. And you believe that there is more of this track two stuff than there used to be? Absolutely. Over the past 10 years or so, there's been a growth. There was quite a bit of it over the Cold War period, where because of the difficulties of official relations between the Soviet Union and the West, there was a good opportunity for conferences, processes that brought people together. But after communism collapsed and after the Berlin Wall came down, there was an effervescence of official diplomacy, lots of peace agreements. But over the past 10 years or so, there's been a growth of conflict, often conflict within countries rather than between them. And that's tricky territory, both for governments and for UN processes. And so that creates a gap for private diplomacy. And there are all sorts of organizations that have grown and plowed into this space. So there's now a profusion of track two and related operators to the extent that it's almost become a problem that there can be too many of them. How so? Well, they can trip over each other. And sometimes people say that trying to make sure that there isn't confusion in this process is a bit like conducting an orchestra. There can be so many well-meaning NGOs and official UN envoys and so on that they're not really coordinating with one another and that they may be acting in some cases at cross purposes. Which ones do you take seriously? So there is this problem of connecting up the tracks. And just to confuse matters, it's not just track one and track two. There's also, believe it or not, track one and a half, which is unofficially run mediation efforts or facilitation efforts with a bit of official involvement. And there's also track three, which is actually rather important. It's working at the community level, bringing together grassroots organizations really to try to ensure that any solution or settlement that's found isn't just an elite settlement, but has the buy-in of groups that don't normally have such a say in the process. I mean, presumably this isn't necessarily an either-or. This can, in a lot of cases, surely be an and. A bit of track one, a bit of track three. Absolutely, but you want to make sure that those tracks are not diverging or acting against each other. So there's a lot, I think, of talk of how to connect the tracks. But coordination is surely not the only pitfall of having what is essentially big business decided in an unofficial capacity. No, I think there are a number of other issues that they have to grapple with. One is that there's a danger that all this becomes just a talking shop and that it doesn't really connect back into official processes that can actually deliver a result. So the transmission mechanism between the tracks is something that has to be grappled with. And then I think the measurement of the effectiveness of these things, these are typically very long-term processes. They happen often 
typically actually behind closed doors in secret. So how do the supporting organisations, which are often neutral governments or well-meaning governments that feel that this is a contribution to a more peaceful world or charitable foundations, how can they make sure that their money is being well spent? And overall, it sounds like a good idea to be promoting peace, but are you actually doing something which is efficient and effective? So if these things are all going on in parallel, then how do you even measure that? Well, that's not so easy to devise. And I think this is very much at the frontier of things, developing, devising metrics and ways of knowing how results or whether results are being achieved. I think we're going to see pressure to have more of that. Especially if the way of the world is that there's more of track two and of 1.5 and of three. Well, if that's the way the world goes, that more of the conflicts are not state to state, but within states and need to be involved the grassroots, then I think as this industry grows, the pressure to make sure that it, it is done well, it's actually a matter of, of life and death. Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Authorities in the Chinese city of Wuhan put it on lockdown yesterday, trying to contain the spread of a new virus that apparently originated there. It probably first took hold in animals, but it's now clear it can spread between people. Yet little is known about just how big a public health concern it is. Yesterday, the World Health Organization was to decide whether to declare the outbreak a global emergency. It deferred that decision to today. On this week's episode of our science and technology podcast, Babbage, health correspondent Slavia Chankova describes the gaps in knowledge and what will happen next. As time goes by and, and more cases progress to the severe stage of the disease, it will also become more clear of just how dangerous it is, for whom is it most dangerous. At this point, it seems to be affecting mostly middle-aged and older people. Uh, It seems to be most dangerous for people who already have pre-existing conditions. And uh, we should also remember that the Chinese New Year uh, is coming coming up, which uh, would result in a massive increase in, in travel, both domestically and internationally, in and out of China. So all these are outstanding questions, the answers to which will become clear in the next probably week or two. For more about the coronavirus outbreak, find Babbage wherever you get your podcasts. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, But cyclones, storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Lesotho is a poor and mountainous kingdom with a population of just 2 million. It covers an area smaller than Belgium and is one of just a few sovereign states that lie entirely within the border of another, in its case, South Africa. It rarely troubles the world's media, but the country is currently in the grip of high political drama. Three years ago, the second wife of the prime minister was murdered, and now his current wife is on the run. Our Africa correspondent, John McDermott, has been following the twists and turns. On the 14th of June, 2017, Dipolero Tabani, the then First Lady of Lesotho, 
was killed in a gun attack outside her home. The estranged wife of Lesotho's new prime minister, Tom Tabane, has been shot dead. Details of and the death of... two days later, her estranged husband was sworn in as prime minister of the landlocked country. On the path of reconciliation and unity. And by his side was a new lady who goes by the name of Messiah Tabani. So for many people in the Sutu, this turn of events was rather fishy and became fishier when Messiah Tabani was married to the prime minister a couple of months later. A daughter from a previous marriage of Mr. Taibani's has alleged that this was all a violent plot so that the new wife, the third wife, Messiah, could become first lady. Of course, both the prime minister and Messiah have long denied any involvement, but in recent weeks, things have taken an interesting turn in the case. How do you mean? What, what kind of interesting turn? Well, shortly after Christmas it became known to the public that the police wanted to question both Mr. Taibani, the prime minister, and his wife, Masaya, in relation to the murder. And it became apparent that there had been a phone call from the crime scene to a number linked to the prime minister. Now, in response to that, things took an even more dramatic turn when the prime minister tried unsuccessfully to suspend the country's police chief. And then the wife became a fugitive. She has not been seen since the end of December and remains on the run. Okay, so just to recap here, the, the daughter of wife number one claims that wife number three has killed wife number two, and now wife number three has gone into hiding. If fingers are pointing at her, what's the alleged motive? So it all comes down to who gets to be the real first lady, and with it, all the perks of that office. Now, Wife number two was married to the current prime minister and she seemed to be refusing to get a divorce and thus, as a court had ruled, was getting to keep all the, the first lady privileges. And according to the aforementioned daughter, this was the motive for wife number three to organise the killing of wife number two. Now, again, all parties deny these accusations, but that is the hypothesis. But, but as you say, all this started a few years ago. Why have there been these developments now? We don't know for sure. It could be the great hard work of Lesotho's police force, but probably it has something to do with the dirty politics of the country. Now, Maisaya Tabani is often compared to Grace Mugabe, another relatively young woman who married a veteran Southern African leader, my sire is 42, her husband is 80 years old. And it is widely perceived that she is a bit of the power behind the tr throne and is preventing other Basutu elites from enjoying the spoils of office. I mean, this, this all has a bit of a, uh, a Game of Thrones air to it. I mean, is, is this the, the kind of politics and intrigue that the, the country is used to, or is this unusual? It's an extreme version of the skullduggery that has been apparent in Lesotho since it became independent in 1966. And it is entirely surrounded by South Africa, upon which it is almost entirely economically reliant. And since independence from Britain, it's gone through a variety of different governments, authoritarian, military rule, and now has a very kind of unstable 
probably deeply corrupt democracy, whereby an increasing number of small parties all try to vie for the spoils of office. And so presumably all of these intrigues are are adding to that instability. Precisely, because Lesotho has no domestic economy of its own to speak of, really. So what money is available is best accessed through politics. And whenever there is a political shock to the system, like we've seen in the past few weeks, it just increases the jockeying for power. And that has escalated even further. I already communicated this message to His Majesty King III. Because only a few days ago, Thomas Tabani, in light of all this pressure, announced that he would be stepping down shortly. And although he hasn't given a date for when he will step down, everyone in Maseru thinks it is fairly imminent. The bigger question, of course, is what happens to him and his wife? The police questioned Mr. Tabani um, on January 22nd, and they're still looking for his wife. The wanted posters are up all around town, but she is still, as yet, nowhere to be seen. So so what does all this confusion and intrigue mean for Lesotho? The case is highly dramatic, it's chaotic, it's fascinating, but there is a serious point. This is a country that can ill afford chaos. It has an incredibly high unemployment rate of 23.5%. Just 20% of people in the countryside have access to electricity. And because of very high rates of HIV AIDS, the life expectancy of people there is only 53, down seven or so years from the late 1980s. So while the immediate victim of this sorry tale is, of course, Dipolelo Tabani, the real victims are, in fact, the people of Lesotho who continue to have such chaotic politics. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Lie detector tests, or polygraphs, are used by some law enforcement agencies around the world. But how accurate they are is a matter of debate. In Japan, evidence obtained from polygraphs is admissible in court. In America, applicants to the FBI and other government agencies have to take the tests to prove their trustworthiness. In Britain, we're all just as familiar as people are elsewhere with a polygraph test, but they're not actually used very much in public policy here. Tom Rowley is a Britain correspondent at The Economist. This week, though, the British government has announced that it's going to start using them with convicted terrorists when they're out on parole. This is to help them work out whether or not they're likely to reoffend. So why turn to lie detectors for that purpose, though? Britain, like many other countries, has seen a number of terrorist attacks in recent years. The latest one involved a convicted terrorist who was released on license from prison, Usman Khan, who murdered two people near London Bridge. There was a lot of debate following that about whether he should have been released from prison at all, whether the probation programs and the scrutiny that he was under was sufficient. The government has therefore announced that it will beef up terrorism legislation particularly how they deal with convicted terrorists and their rehabilitation, including giving more money for probation officers and introducing this new lie detector test. And so this is just a matter of authorities trying to to throw anything they have in their arsenal against this pointed question? Yes, but they are already more widely used than you might think. 
they're not used in courts in Britain. They're not admissible as evidence. They're used quite widely in the US and Japan. But traditionally, British authorities have been rather more sceptical about them. In the last few years, though, they have been used by probation authorities in other cases. So, for instance, with serious sex offenders, they've been subjected to polygraph tests since about 2007. More recently, that's been extended to people convicted of domestic abuse as well. But importantly, these tests are not being used to establish veracity or otherwise of claims that are going to be put before court. They're merely another tool in the arsenal of probation officers who are assessing whether or not the convicted person is going to reoffend or not when they're out on license. Given the prior scepticism, why is this coming back in? This isn't a political issue. It's not that the, the Tories are mad keen on polygraph testing or something. It's simply that the community of psychologists and forensic psychologists in particular have been debating the efficacy or otherwise for years. And some psychologists who are treating particular groups of offenders have found that it does work in some ways. Well, that's been exactly the question about these things and the source of, of the prior skepticism on behalf of authorities. They, they do or they don't work. I mean, what's changed on that question? The way they're supposed to work is by recording physiological responses. The body's reaction to certain questions, whether you're more likely to sweat, whether your breathing rate increases when you're asked questions that you respond incorrectly to. The problem is that this is being applied more as an exact science than it actually is. So, for instance, in the UK, we had this programme called the Jeremy Kyle Show, which was sort of very much like Jerry Springer or something. Jeremy, you've done nothing wrong. Why don't you answer the question? You told him it was two days and you admitted to the lie detector expert it was two weeks. Why did you lie? It's there. Why did I lie? Go on. Come on, Wayne. Why did I lie? But you didn't have sexual intercourse with the guy, did you? I didn't touch it. He didn't touch me. So why does the test say you passed sexual intercourse but you failed the other two? It was dealing with the usual messy issues of daytime TV. Guests might be asked whether they had an affair and then rigged up to one of these machines to prove whether or not they were telling the truth. One participant took his own life after failing a test on the show, and the show is now being cancelled. So that has done much to dampen the credibility of these tests. And rightly so, their success rate is nowhere near as good as it ought to be in order to say that just by rigging someone up to one of these tests, you can prove whether they're lying or not. Even so, they do have their uses. So why then, with that history behind it, would authorities want to add this to their arsenal, a largely discredited kind of test? Two reasons. One is that even though a study by the National Academy of Sciences found that they were very far from perfect, they still can spot lies at rates well above chance, although far below perfection. Whereas cops and probation officers, according to most studies, only spot them at the rate of chance. And therefore, they're still better than the alternative alone. The second reason is that it might be better to see them as truth facilitators rather than lie detectors. So in other words, while they might not be very good at measuring the physiological responses, they do have an interesting psychological effect on offenders. If offenders believe that these things might work, or at least that they might work some of the time, the argument is that they're more likely simply to tell the truth in the first place and to disclose more about what they're up to, their activities while they're on bail, than they might otherwise do so. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.